0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
0: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Sydney, Australia. At the Ovalo, uh, you're going to love the name of this hotel, Woolloomooloo, right here on the water in Sydney. I've been coming to Sydney, gosh, since 1975. And uh, so much of it has changed and so much of it hasn't. I love it. I love the people. I love the weather. I love the location. I love this particular location because it's right on the water and very close to the Sydney Harbor Bridge and the rocks and, of course, the Sydney Opera House. Uh, joining me now someone who knows a little bit about Sydney because she's the editor-in-chief of Time Out Sydney, Emma Joyce. Thank you. Emma, I know you've been here for about... About eight years?
2: I have. I moved here eight years ago.
0: I've been coming for, well, since 1974. And to say that I've seen the change being dramatic would be an understatement. Um, when I first came here, it was right after the Opera House opened, right? It was 1974. Wow. Uh, amazing. Uh, what an architectural icon. It still is probably the definitive image that people have when they think of Sydney.
2: Absolutely. And the bridge behind it, I think you need yes. the two icons in one picture. Absolutely.
0: And it's hard to believe that that that, uh, you know, that building is what forty five years old? It
2: is. We we were just um, my partner and I moved here eight years ago. I am originally from the UK. We're now Australian citizens. Uh, and I was watching some archive footage just the other day of, of the opera house being built, and I can't imagine Benelong Point without the opera house. Uh, but the the amusing thing is that when I when I moved here, I really expected from all the pictures you see of the opera house for it to be pristine white. I was expecting, you know, the the sun. To bounce off this opera house, and when I got there, it is far more complex. Cream, yes. cream it kind is. of color with all these really intricate um, divots patterns. And you can, if if you go to the opera house, and for example, if you're visually impaired or you or you've always been blind. You can hold one of those tiles and really get a sense of, of the texture yeah. of the opera house. And I just I love that an institution like that has so many different ways to access it. And just the more and more that I go to that building, the more it means to me.
0: And, you know, as cutting edge as that was at the time, it's still sort of cutting edge today. Absolutely. What I love about Sydney uh, and almost all of Australia is you have a at least an attempt Somewhat successful to preserve the architectural heritage as well. I mean, look where we are right now. This particular hotel, the Ovolo Woolamulu. I love that. <laughs> Wollamulu. Wollamulu. Excuse me. <laughs> um, I mean that history alone of this place, and and look what it's doing now. I mean, we're, we're right here on the water. They've taken. A, they've, they've converted a wharf, if you will. To an entire hotel and, Absol- pre- and yeah. preserved its history at the same time.
2: It, it, it and from the outside, you would still look at this and can imagine all of those all of those ships rolling into this as a port yeah. and it being used as a working, functioning building where you could you could imagine um, possibly wool even being drawn into this building.
0: Well, inside the building, they still they still kept. The old conveyor belts, the old wooden and, and 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 all the pulleys and levers of how they used to load the ships.
2: Yeah, and you can see it when you get into the elevators here. You can see you can see the how industrial this building is. And now you know now it's a building that has celebrities who've lived uh, right next door to the hotel.
0: Exactly. All right. So here we are with Time Out Sydney. Obviously, you feature all the attractions, all the entertainment. I mean, as Time Out does everywhere in the in the world. Right. But Sydney is an interesting animal to me because, uh, as opposed to some other Australian cities, you still haven't come to grips yet with the fact that you can go 24 7.
2: That's true. There's, this is true. Everything you've heard about Sydney's nightlife in the past five years, has an element of truth to it. But I would also say there's, there is underground nightlife. There, it does exist here. Um, people don't just go to bed at 7 p.m. And, and rise happy to jog along the harbor at 6 a.m., though they definitely do that. It is definitely a morning city.
0: Oh, listen, what, what I used to do here, uh, when I came here, I stayed at the Park Hyatt, a beautiful location looking right at the Opera House, of course. Uh, and if you ask the chef, the chef would make a phone call. And then they would make two picnic baskets for you in two wicker baskets. And then two Harleys would show up with two drivers. They put the baskets on the back of the Harley. you get on one. Your significant other would get on the other. And then you have, hold on tight, you're getting an up-close-and-personal tour of Sydney from the ground. Yeah. Right? And I've then,
2: done this on those Harleys. Yeah, yeah is, I've done really it. It's really fun. And
0: then they'd swing back around on the grass looking over the opera house, right, and lay out a picnic blanket and... There you were having your picnic. It's you, a lot and, of fun you to be on the back of a it, Harley. And you can still yeah. do it.
2: Yeah, and you, can, you, you definitely can still do it. That was one of, um, I got my friends to challenge me to do, this is a little while ago now, but 28 things to do before I was 28 on the 28th. And one of those things was to ride on a Harley over the over the Harbour Bridge. And did you? Yeah, I did. Another one was to see opera at the Opera House. And instead I went to um, Handa Opera, which is the one that they do out out on the water. So out on the harbour, and the stage is floating from the Botanic Gardens. Yeah, it's just spectacular. There's fireworks behind. Sometimes performers arrive by boat. It is. It's just. It's your postcard moment of Sydney.
0: But here's the thing: if you know who to call, right? It's amazing the experiences you can have. For example, a number of years ago, uh, I found out anybody can come and take a tour of the Opera House. They, they those are organized. You can do it. Learn the history. Um, walk around. Yeah,
2: it's open. You can just
0: walk on in. But here's a little secret I found out a couple of years ago. Twice a week, at around 7 in the morning, the symphony orchestra comes to rehearse.
2: Wow, that's a great great tip. (laughs) Wait, it gets
0: better. It gets better. And if you call ahead and they're in the mood, they'll not only invite you in, they'll give you an, an instrument, and you get to go up there with them and play it.
2: Wow, did you do this?
0: I did it. And of course, let, let me see if you can guess the instrument they gave me where I could do absolutely no damage to their musical performance. Um, triangle. You got it. Excellent. <laughs> that's,
2: that's exactly what it was. That's fantastic.
0: And and what was the other instrument they gave me? Oh, a tambourine? No. No. A kazoo. A kazoo. <laughs> a kazoo. <laughs> Still, a little more damage there, but we got through it. But these are the things you can do because if you just everybody's so open to doing it. You just ask and you can do it. Sydney has always been welcoming. You climbed the bridge.
2: I haven't climbed the bridge. I haven't. I know. I have kayaked underneath it though, which I think is just as
0: spectacular. Well, kayaking underneath it, given the current of the water, there is a little challenging.
2: It is. So you do it on um, Sunday mornings around early. Early around five a.m. Yeah, before any of the any of the fleets have got started, so there are no ferries right. moving mm-hmm. around in the harbour. And actually, it's a little bit more like a lake it at is, that time. It's the only
0: time of the day. It is. it
2: is the only time of the day, and that is. And you can you can kayak with a, a group. There's a tour. It's called Sunrise uh, Sydney Sunrise by Kayaks, and you can uh, get a coffee that sits in your kayak just at the beginning, because oh, of course on. we're in Sydney, How Australia, convenient. so you need you How need a convenient. coffee in the morning, and kayak under the bridge and watch the sunrise.
0: Well, I got a chance, I'm going back 20 years ago, uh, to climb the bridge when they first did it, uh, and I got them to let me do it. They won't let you do it now, but I got a chance to do it at 6 in the morning.
2: Wow, yes. They
0: don't really open until 9, 8.30, 9, but at 6 in the morning, by the time you get up there, you're watching everything come alive mm. over Sydney.
2: You can do a sunset one on the bridge, and I think that that is equally as spectacular because you've got the the beauty of the harbour as it's facing north, so you get the sunrise in the east and you get the sunset in the west, and you can get completely different um, aspects of the of the city life as it's either waking up or going to bed or or going out for the night because there still is nightlife in Sydney. Oh yeah, it's just that it's a little more challenging nowadays. So we're not as twenty four hour as Melbourne, certainly not as late rising or late partying as New York, uh, but there are pockets of Sydney's uh, live music scene that really is thriving, right. but you have to know where to find it.
0: And that's in, in time out. What a segue that is.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it is in time out.
0: But back to the bridge for a second. I want to warn everybody, or I should say caution you, that as you're climbing the bridge and if you look down, it's it's not about looking down on the water. It's looking down on the traffic. <laughs> you're watching all the traffic going over to Manly, and the trains, and the trains. It's wild.
4: It it's is now, wild.
0: You are cabled in. You're wearing a special jumpsuit with with special you know carabiners, and you are wired into the cable mm. on the bridge. You're not going anywhere. You can't bring your camera because they don't want anything falling off you and, and hitting anybody. They will take a picture of you, but it's it's definitely worth it.
2: Yeah. I- I've always wanted to. The one of the things that I have done in the harbor, which you wouldn't think you would want to do because it's such a touristy activity, um, but I've had the best best time. I've done it twice. Is a jet boat around the harbor? Have you seen those? I
0: have. You know, one of the things that I see every time I go around the world. Speaking of this hotel, uh, is the accountants running the asylum? Every hotel nickel and diming you. um, Everything is a profit center. You know, they have the Darth Vader mini bars, and you know the eight (laughs) dollar bottle of water. And they think that this is engendering goodwill. <laughs> what I noticed about this hotel from the minute I came in is the mini bar is free. They don't charge you for the water. Uh, now, I'm not a big drinker, but every afternoon, if you're a guest of the hotel for an hour, there's a happy hour and all the drinks are free. I mean, it's like- how- What a treat. But the best part, they have candy in the lobby. I love candy in the lobby. I mean, but it sends a good message. It does send a good message. Do you know what? It reminds me of Sydney,
2: a lot of Sydney in general. Um, you know, we have free barbecues, right? They're no. in the parks and on no. the beaches. Yeah,
0: free barbecues? free barbecues. Who's, so, who's, who's throwing that party? Do
2: you know what? I don't even know who is throwing that party, but I presume someone in a council somewhere, uh, and everyone knows how to use it, and everyone respects and respects that gift, if you like, from. You, from our tax money, I presume. But you just go along to a park and you can take your own food and the barbecues are there. You just press a little button there. Uh, they're electric. And you just fire up the barbecue. And of course, you've got a, bobble, a bubbler, as we say. We a call water, the water fountain. Water yes. fountains. They're all free. And your toilets are free as well. And uh, I I grew up around London and you have to pay to use a public bathroom in London. I know. <laughs> so, so they it should it does, actually have to pay you to use a public bathroom. It does feel very different and far more... Far more like a place where I can spend a lot of time outside in Sydney and I'm welcomed because I can go for a jog and, you know, use a public bathroom without having to pay for it. Also go down to a park in the evening and have a picnic, have a barbecue, invite some friends, you know. And it works. It works. It's really, it's... Yeah, it's a really lovely community. I what think. I've also
0: seen in Sydney, but I'm seeing it now around the world, are the, and in fact in one place in, in Lisbon, you guys are involved in Timeout, the growth of the food halls.
2: Mm, right, boy, are we involved? Oh we... my
0: God, there's a food hall in Lisbon that is my favorite.
2: It's five years old. I, a couple of days ago, I, happy birthday. Lisbon. And
0: I go there at least twice a year uh, because one of my favorite restaurants is in that food hall called Pop Sorta because they're known for their chocolate mousse. But that's another story. Uh, but you have them here. In, you have them here in Sydney.
2: We don't have a market here yet, but
0: but you're having food halls. I mean, we
2: have food halls yes. all over Sydney. Yeah, they're so popular. So there's there's one in Circular Quay called the Gateway, which is which, which is relatively new. It wasn't here when I I first moved to Sydney eight years ago. Um, and now now you can go and get roti. You can go and get um, some of the famous famous gelato here. The, uh, Explain Messina roti, gelato. please. Roti. Uh, it is Malaysian. Uh, it is beautiful flaked dough that you can you. You can kind of dip into your curry sauce or anything like that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing carb <laughs> that you can fill up on after a few drinks down at the harbour. But also they've got tram sheds down in Roselle, which is a former tram shed. So a, a former area where you would have your trams repaired. And um, they've got lots of different restaurants from some of the best restaurant owners in Sydney. So it's a way to kind of get the best of the city in one place.
0: And of course, Sydney is very much a breakfast culture.
2: It is. It certainly is. There are, there are so many cafes. If you go down to Bondi at, at 6 a.m., then you're already too late to line up for some of those cafes because you won't get a spot, and you should try again tomorrow morning.
0: Well, help me out. Where can I go in Sydney where I'm not going to be in a queue?
2: Well, okay. Where you're not going to be in a queue is kind of tricky because we like to queue. But I would take you, <laughs> I would take you to um, Carriageworks Farmer's Markets, which is every Saturday morning. And it's in Everly. And again, it's a, it's a carriage work. So it used to be a place where you'd have your trains repaired. And so it's a really heritage building. And they also host lots of art exhibitions there. And on Saturday mornings, they have a farmer's markets. And I would take you around to those stalls because uh, one of the stalls is a fish, is a fish butchery. By Saint Peter and Saint Peter is a really good restaurant in Paddington that focuses on sustainable seafood and what he does every morning on Saturdays is he presents some of his his creations sausages if you like, but instead of beef they 're made with one of the local fish and you might get cutlets but instead of sort of pork or lamb it will be a really chunky red piece of, of fish from Whatever it is that he's caught in the morning, the whole idea of this is that it's all sustainable. So you can't go planning what you'll eat from. Listen, in
0: a country where I first came here, where everything was like guess the age of the meat pie in, in the in the counter, right? You've come a long way.
2: <laughs> there, there are still the meat pies, and we're still really is, into wait, a meat it, pie and footy <laughs> Is there
0: still a place where you can get a really great meat pie?
2: Definitely, and you're like meters away from it. <laughs> have you been to Harry's, which is right wait, outside? I know about Harry's, yes. Yeah, then Harry's is an institution. It is, it is, of course, where you go and get your meat pie. But it's especially good if you have already been to see a band late at night maybe and maybe you've had a few cocktails and you then realize you, should, you, you, indulge you realize in a your bit conversation
0: fine. includes the word cocktails every time you're talking about it
2: yeah I did have a couple of drinks last night yes uh, I'd also recommend Love Tilly Divine which is a lovely wine bar where I was having a couple of natural wines Toto? i have
0: a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore those of you who are vaguely familiar with Sydney, uh, you might see every New Year's Eve uh, them light up the bridge with the most amazing fireworks display. I've been here for that, by the way. It's r- remarkable. I mean, look, there are fireworks displays and then there are fireworks displays. This is a fireworks display. But then there's another time of the year when they do something else. And in fact, they've been doing it now for the last month. It's just ending today. So get ready for next year. It's called Vivid. Talk about a light display. It is <laughs> unparalleled. And joining me now, the director of tourism, the head of tourism for New South Wales, but she has this other little title too. She runs this thing called Vivid. Sandra Chipchase, how are you?
3: I'm very well, thank you, Peta.
0: I mean, when we talk about light displays, we're not just talking about the bridge, the opera house. I mean, I, I, when you see how you light this thing up, it's 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 remarkable.
3: Well, uh, Vivid Sydney is the largest festival uh, of its kind in the Southern Hemisphere, but it's also now Australia's largest event, and it consists of three pillars: music, uh, ideas, and light. And I think the one well, that I was Eden attracted, knows, of course, to the light. You correct. Know. Yeah. Well, it's a three kilometres of uh, light installations, three D mapping of buildings all around the city. We have we reach out to the world and ask people to submit ideas for their light installations. So let's talk. Okay, what kind of ideas are we talking about? Well, we're talking about uh, where uh, a light sculpture might respond to human touch or human movement. Uh, we had one light sculpture a year where, or a light installation where the louder you laughed, the more uh, the smiles in the boxes lit up. And so it was, uh, so we're all these people laughing, gathering around, trying to laugh loudly so that there'd be more light installations light up.
0: I like the audience participation part. I love yeah. it. But I mean, they get very creative, don't
3: they? Absolutely. And we uh, We've got uh, uh, a lot, what's interesting about the the lights, people say, oh, I must use so much energy. In fact, LED lights use a tenth of the power of a regular light globe. So a lot of the light installations are solar powered uh, and uh, this year we've got a lot of light installations uh, that have been made out of recycled plastic. We've got 3D uh, mapping. Uh, A few weeks ago in somebody's lounge room over in North Sydney, they had a 3D printer going off to make a 2.8 meter sculpture that has light lighting inside it. So there are all sorts of really intriguing things that people do.
0: Okay, so this begs the question I have to ask it. Of all the submissions coming in with the ideas of of how they're going to participate in Vivid, which are the ones you said absolutely no to? <laughs>
3: The ones that are boring uh, or samey or that we've had before. People keep coming back to Vivid. That's why it's the largest event in Australia because every year the art is different, the music is different, and the talks series is different.
0: All right. Now let's talk about the music.
3: Uh-huh. Uh, well, we have uh, uh, about 61 different artists, right about – uh, through twenty-three venues throughout the city, and it's everything from jazz. I mean, this year we've had Herbie Hancock, The Cure have come back and done their Disintegration album. Wait a uh, second,
0: The Cure is still around?
3: Yes, of course they are. They're uh, uh, so we for every age group and every genre of music from classical, jazz, uh, electronic, pop, we uh, try to do. Interesting collaborations, and so from small bars and clubs through to the concert hall at the Opera House, for the Vivid Music part of the Vivid Sydney Festival, there is really something for everybody. And how are
0: you using the Opera House? Because uh, I've seen the lighting on it.
3: Yeah. I mean. Well, you know, for this, the sales are uh, we, obviously the, the. It's the centerpiece. Every year, we choose a different artist in a co-collaboration uh, and curation with the Opera House. Uh, this year we've chosen Andrew Thomas Huang, who's a young artist from Los Angeles, and he's uh, doing a tribute to Australia uh, flora on the sails. So you'll see some beautiful waritas when you have a look. Uh, I'm sure many of your listeners have already seen some of the imagery, uh, but uh, it's and he's mixing the uh, the flora uh, with dance so you'll see dancing flowering gums uh the waratahs it is it's it's absolutely exquisite he's done a remarkable job
0: in all the years that you've been doing this what was the, the most surprising one uh
3: i think uh, uh, well ev- every year it's like saying who's your favorite kid uh we've loved every year because it's always different i know I don't think- give
0: me the political answer give me one that you loved
3: uh, well, I loved Snuggle Pie and Cuddlepot. Now, I know your <laughs> see, listeners I, are going... See, I, I
0: knew that would happen. I asked him to get this. Go ahead. Great.
3: Okay, so your listeners are probably going, what's that? Uh, there was an Australian author called Mae Gibbs, and she wrote a, a series of books for children uh, called The Gumnut Babies, and they are brother, two brothers, Snuggle Pie and Cuddlepot.
5: Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio
6: with no particular place to go.
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. A couple of notes about where we are. Uh, I've been coming to Sydney since 1974. When I first came here, The place, like, closed up at 5.30 in the evening. So did everywhere else in Australia. I think Melbourne closed at 4. Perth, I don't think, opened. (laughs) Life has changed. So many more things to do and see here. So much architecture, history, uh, so much culture, not only preserved, but developed. Um, And, of course, the food scene out of control. But the one thing that's iconic about Australia, not just Sydney, but when you take a look at the map... And you look at the world's largest island, you see very quickly, it's the beaches, it's the water. And what's iconic and preserved, it's the lifeguards. Um, And they're legendary. And joining me now, basically, the head lifeguard, Bruce Hopkins, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. How many lifeguards are we talking about?
7: Oh, look, we look after Bronte, Tamarama, and Bondi Beach. So we've got 38 all up that uh, rotate through those beaches. And And that's just out here in Sydney. Or Bondi, I mean, yeah. That's just around Bondi area. So, I mean, there's lifeguards all around Australia, up and down the coastlines and uh, covering Yeah. Majority of the of the the main beaches that they have.
0: You've been what the longest serving head lifeguard of anybody I know. You've been here almost twenty years.
7: Yeah, no, yeah, it's coming up to twenty eight now, so. Uh, no, but
0: but since head lifeguard
7: though. Oh, head lifeguard? Yes, yeah. that's right. I've been nearly uh 18 19 years th- exactly now. That's so. exactly what I just said, Bruce. Yeah, Don't yeah, hurt me. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. That's a long time.
7: It is a long time. Um Are probably... you invo-
0: Are you involved in the races?
7: Yeah, I do a few of those. So, it's,
0: Explain uh... explain that cuz that's that's crazy. I mean, seri- it's great theater. It's great entertainment, but it's crazy to watch.
7: Yeah, it is. It's something that uh you got to be you know really fit and good racing against each other and, and, and having uh, a bit of fun at the same time. But, you know, people don't give an inch, so it, it's pretty competitive out there. Walk me through what a race is. Well, there's um, the ones we do there at uh, Bondi, we, we swim. Uh, also, we board paddle, and then we do a, a run as well. So it's all combined, uh, one after the other. It's uh, sort of
0: a mini triathlon.
7: It is a mini triathlon. It's, um, we go from beach to beach when we do our one. So we're covering the, the three beaches we, uh, we look after and patrol as lifeguards. So it's, um, you know, we capture everything that we do and what you need to do to be fit to be a lifeguard.
0: One of the things that I see happening all the time, and it's not just here in, in Sydney; it's all around the world. When you have visitors like Americans coming
7: who have no idea what the
0: what the what the Southern Hemisphere sun is all about, they have no idea what your currents are all about, but they want to go out and participate in the beach culture and have a great time. They can get in trouble.
7: Yeah, I mean, we get a, a lot of people on on a busy day down there. You'll get thirty to forty thousand people, and a lot of those are people coming through, for, you know, from overseas and. You know, it's, it's often we'll get fifty to hundred rescues in a day. Our busiest day was two hundred and thirty-five rescues uh, that I can remember since I've been there. So, two hundred and thirty-five. Yeah, in in that the means day. you
0: never were on the stand; you were on the beach running.
7: Yeah, you're uh, you're pretty much on the go. Uh, you know, that was probably in also uh, predominantly the afternoons are, are most busy when because, the wind whips up. Yeah, wind comes up, people are around, and you know they all come in for the afternoon after they've done their activities in the morning. So, it can be pretty full on down there.
0: And alcohol might be involved.
7: Yeah, that's the uh, another thing. I just thought I'd mention that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, see, with us, it's uh, different to, to you guys over in the U.S. It's our fest- festives in that, uh, around uh, Christmas and New Year and all that. We can get 35-degree weather. So perfect beach weather combined with alcohol at the same time while everyone's celebrating. Starts with uh, an R and ends with a knee. It's called Rescue. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you can end up in a disaster. <laughs> What's your biggest challenge? Uh, the biggest challenge is, is probably teaching people how to float, I think, uh, you know, rips, uh, 90%. If you're of, a riptide, don't fight it. That's right. Right? That's right, that's right. We uh, try and, and, and teach people just to float because all it is is a movement of water. 90% of the rips will float across onto the sandbank where you can stand up or where the white water is, where the waves are breaking, and that pushes you back into shore. So, you know, 90% of the time you can save yourself, but it's the panic where – Where you enter, it's where they want to exit. So it's um, a a strange type of thing, but that's where they they, the panic and the uh, trying to fight against it is where they get in trouble.
0: And then, of course, there's the surf culture.
7: Yeah, the surf culture's um, you know I grew up with that through the seventies and eighties. It was uh, you know you're a surfer. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic time. Um, It's changed now because there's so many people surfing. Back in those days, you either surfed or you didn't surf. (laughs) <laughs> you didn't even, yeah, if, if, if you didn't hang out down the beach with, with, all, the, uh, with all the surfies and uh, get in and try and surf, you never really attempted it. Whereas now there's so many surf schools around, everybody's coming down and having a go, and it's just uh, multiplied uh, the amount of people are out there on surfboards.
0: The thing that amazes me, and, and, and I used to surf years ago, is that the people who want to be stand-up paddleboarders – Think they can also surf. <laughs> you, you know where I'm going. Yes, right? we have the same problem. And you and you see a guy up there on a stand up paddleboard in serious waves, and you're going, What are you doing? Because you're only going to be
7: standing up momentarily. That's right. It's uh yeah totally different uh trying to catch waves on a stand up paddleboard. They're so much bigger and thicker. And yeah, you're really just taking. No, they don't turn, well. They no, don't they turn, don't turn well. very well at all. And uh, we do get a lot of injuries from that where people are running each other over there at Bondi. So it can be very hazardous. I'm
0: going to date myself and tell you this, Bruce, that. When I first started surfing, the boards were mahogany. Yeah, they actually held water. You had they had a drain pipe. Yeah, right. They had no skeg. Yeah, you went where the waves took you. You couldn't cut. Yep, that's and right. they weighed 140 pounds. So if you got hit by one, you were in deep trouble. You know, the, and you didn't have them last to your ankle. It was yep. it was it. They yep. took off on you, or you took off on them, or you lost them.
7: That's right. Yep. Amazing. Yep. Things have changed in that department. They have too. changed. My, l- lucky I came through with the, uh, the the fiberglass was was coming in with the surfboards, and then the leash also was uh, that was uh, starting to come in as well.
0: Exactly. What is there a good beginner's beach? Oh, where somebody's going to get in less trouble.
7: Yeah, I mean, look, North Bondi is quite um, mellow and calm with a wave. A lot of kids learn to surf down there on on the foam the cool light boards, and it's a great place to learn. Down there, it's, a, it's a, a softer wave. It doesn't break as heavy, so it can be uh, quite good for kids. And Manly? Manly, yeah. They're, they're, uh, that's pretty mellow as well down that uh, <laughs> south end.
0: <but laughs> Although my experience in Manly was when I first came to Australia, I went across the Harbour Bridge. I went to Manly. I never took my sunscreen with me. I got so burned. Yeah that I literally came back to Sydney and slept for two nights in the bathtub in my hotel. That's how bad it was. So I want to tell everybody the sun down here is a lot stronger than you've ever experienced.
7: Yeah, it's very, very strong. It's, um, yeah, we often see people, they're out there sunbaking, especially the ones from Europe. They're, uh, they'll get out there and not used to the, the warm weather. And, uh, yeah, they look like, a bit like a lobster by they're walking off the beach.
0: No, no, they don't look like a lobster. They are, <laughs> they are a lobster. <laughs> Come
7: on. I mean,
0: do you ever go up to them and say, have you heard of sunscreen? Have you heard of, you know,
7: SPF? Yeah, often we'll go past and you can see people starting to get that reddy color and, and starting to burn. And you just give them a, a, a little tap to say, you know, you should be either get out of the sun or put some sunscreen on. And do they listen? No. No. <laughs> <laughs>
4: If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside
3: the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are
1: continuing on with another airline, we really don't
8: care. I am a passenger.
0: When I was growing up, my first trip to Europe I was on a Pan Am 707. I was 12 years old, and it was about seven and a half hours. That was the longest time I'd ever been on a plane. Uh, I got so nervous and excited that as we circled over Orly, I threw up um, because it was just like such a new experience for I me. Mean, plus, I'd gone longer than I'd ever gone before. Of course, in those days when you flew across the country in, in America, you stopped. It was, it was yes, I am, I am that old. But what's the definition of long haul today? Well, in Australia, Qantas essentially defined itself uh, as, as an airline it was long haul. Just get out the map, you'll see for yourself. Every flight they were taking outside the country was, by definition, extreme long haul. Joining me now, Phil Caps, who who runs basically the Project Sunshine that they're looking at something that's even longer haul. Phil, my question is this: it, at what point do you, you know, do you reach the point of diminishing returns in the passenger experience, in the crew experience? I mean, if I was giving you my personal preference, I'd want to get it all done at once. You know, if I'm going to go from from Perth to London. I don't want to stop. Just let's keep going because I want to get it out of the way. Is that what you're finding passengers are, are driving this move to, to even go longer flights?
9: Yeah, I think because travel is increasingly part of our customer's life and, and world, uh, the ability for an airline to be able to d- deliver travel efficiently is increasingly attractive. And if we can address some of those traditional obstacles to travel, whether it's comfort or sleep, Uh, whether it's, uh, you know, efficiency or flight duration, then we can start to increase the the envelope of long haul. You know, 15 years ago, uh, any flight beyond sort of 13 hours was considered untenable. But if you can evolve and innovate with aircraft technology and service, food and beverage, then you can really start to push the boundaries. And that's what we've really begun to do with with the Dreamliner so far.
0: Well, I was on on your A380 flight from Los Angeles to Melbourne. and That was close to 16 hours.
9: Yeah. So that's existing today. Uh, our flights between Dallas and Sydney, uh, you know, beyond 16 hours. And obviously our Perth to London nonstop flight um, pushes beyond 17 hours. So and then,
0: of course, the, the longest flights are uh, Doha to Auckland or Singapore to Newark, which come in are almost, almost 18 and a half hours, I think.
9: Yeah. And if you can address those needs that customers have then the efficiency that you get out of non-stop flying becomes extremely attractive. And, you know, that's borne out with the success of our Perth-London route, which is, which is incredibly strong in terms of commercial demand because of the, the efficiency that customers can get in point to point.
0: I think about this. You know, you have the technology that arguably can handle it. It's there now um, with either existing airframes or with modifications to those airframes, but not designing an entirely new aircraft. But you've got to be able to raise the level of the passenger experience to meet the technology. Otherwise, it'll be a disaster.
9: Yeah, that's exactly right. And the way to do that is not necessarily to take an existing flight sector and stretch it out, put more white space between the service interactions, but use existing technology. The, the way that we looked at the Dreamliner experience and the way that we're looking at potential future flights that might go beyond 22 hours is to understand fundamentally what are the basic human needs and then make sure we are addressing those by redesigning everything from the hard experience, the seats, the cabin interior, the, the furnishings on the aircraft, all the way through to the software experience, whether that's entertainment or service interactions uh, or Wi-Fi. And if you can do all of that, then uh, you've got something that's quite different that can address you know specific needs for ultra long haul.
0: You know, my first Dreamliner experience was from, from Tokyo to Frankfurt. And I noticed the difference based on the design of the plane. The, the pressure was less. Um, you had the larger windows, the lighting on the plane. You you really made use of, or they really made use of mood lighting. When I got off the plane, I mean, I'm I'm one of those guys. Okay, you're laughing, but I'm one of those guys who doesn't believe in jet lag. I just don't get it, and, and I have my own way to do it. I have my own regimen, and I, I, I'm sure there are scientists who will say I'm nuts, but I do it right. I mean, what I do is, if I feel like sleeping on the plane, I sleep on the plane. If I feel like working on the plane, I work on the plane. If I feel like eating on the plane. I choose what I eat carefully. I, I'll have fruit. I'll have cheese. I won't have any alcohol. Um, but the key to me is not the plane. It's what I do when I land. And no matter where I go, no matter what time I land, I stay up until midnight local time that night. So that means no heavy lunch, no afternoon nap. If I take an afternoon nap, no one, including me, will see me for three days, right? And then I cycle. But that I can't say that's going to work for everybody, right? But you have to be able to say, you know, when you take the ultra long haul flight, right, the effects of jet lag, the effects on all those influences on your body for that extended amount of time at altitude, you can, you're not going to get rid of them, but you can minimize them.
9: Exactly. And this is why we've engaged with our partners at uh, the Charles Perkins Centre at the University of Sydney, because now we have access to this great cohort of world's leading specialists, whether it is in uh, sleep, whether they are nutritionists, biomedical engineers, uh, metabolic physicians. All of these people uh, uh, have been a part of the development of the Dreamliner experience and will continue to be part of future aircraft um, and network planning. You're not
0: limiting this to the Dreamliner? No,
9: no, really our relationship with the Charles Perkins Centre is entirely holistic. So we've started with ultra-long-haul and, and, and we use the 787 as the catalyst for that. Um, obviously, Project Sunrise um, is a great new opportunity, but we think the ability to think at a more humane level um, uh, is just as important for short-haul travel as it is for long-haul travel. What you do in terms of solutions for short-haul might be different, uh, but the way in which we humanize or increasingly humanize aircraft travel, um, we think is, is incredibly important. I mean, I go back to the original
0: Singapore to Newark flight, which they canceled a couple of years ago. They had it configured to all business class. Uh, and they were on a plane that burned too much fuel. They just could not make a profit on it, even though they were they were going out with very good passenger loads. They canceled it. Now they're back. Singapore is back with Singapore and Newark, but they've reconfigured their plane. It's not all business class, it's business class and premium economy, and they and, but they have not put in traditional economy because in their own research, it came back saying, passengers are saying, are you out of your mind? And almost 19 hours between Singapore and Newark in coach, I'll take hostages, I can't do it. So obviously that plays into how you're configuring the planes as well.
9: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then how great is innovation from an airframe but also a materials perspective that now opens up whole new opportunities to be able to offer new networks, uh, new frequencies to customers that historically would not have been commercially sustainable. So, you know, with this kind of innovation and not just the aircraft but in seating technology and the materials that we might even use to make aircraft galleys and bathrooms, all of those things mean that the aircraft now are more efficient, they are lighter, they're more environmentally sustainable But now we can get customers to their destination quicker and more efficiently and more comfortably than we ever have before. And we'll continue to leverage this style of innovation to help us continue sort of pushing the envelope of travel into the future.
0: But you also have to take into consideration crew time, crew chores, crew rest. How many people will you need additionally, if any, to be able to complete those tasks given what those tasks are over an extended period of time?
9: Yep, exactly. We need to think about what they're doing, but also we don't want to just use traditional service interactions and apply those to ultra long haul as well. Because when we think about the needs of our own people but and also the needs of our customers, what we interact with them and, and how we interact with them will necessarily change when you start to think about a flight that is beyond 17 hours in duration. Because it's done to think about a whole human day plus a whole human night. And what you need to do in those spaces can be quite different. So this is why we're taking a very clean sheet of paper approach to, the, to uh, Project Sunrise and not, not just assume something because it's been done historically.
0: So for Project Sunrise, your dream list would be Sydney, New York. That's S- right. Sydney, London. Yep. Anywhere else?
9: Uh, well, I mean, flights of that duration. So yeah. it's really the ability to fly from the east coast of Australia or any point in Australia to any point in the world. Wow. And when is this supposed to happen? Uh, you know, we're still working on, on the program. We need to see it prove itself commercially, but it'd be great to be able to have an aircraft you know, in the air by sort of the mid-2022, uh, 2023. But
0: realistically, we're not talking about a new aircraft. We're talking about a newly designed interior, a newly, de- newly configured aircraft of an existing airframe.
9: Yeah, and this is part of the challenge that our CEO, Alan Joyce, was put to the aircraft manufacturers, which is to say we need you to really push your innovation to get us an airframe that we can then customise for our own Uh, um, missions, uh, to make it really attractive for our customers, to make sure we are meeting their needs, and to make sure that we can use that as a basis for future growth. I mean,
0: you have to look at every single component part of the passenger experience to make this work. Not just food, not just light, not just rest. I mean, how many times will they be going to the bathroom and how much water is going to be consumed every time a toilet is flushed, et cetera, et cetera?
9: Yeah, that's exactly right. This whole development of an aircraft configuration is very much one of constrained optimization. Um, and there is no immediate way to be able to get into a perfect configuration. Right.
5: Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
0: One of the most misunderstood and often misleading terms, and everybody thinks they know what it is, some people even anticipate getting it themselves, some people live for it, some people deny it, I'm one of those, is jet lag. Now, I'm one of those people who don't believe it's a real condition only because I don't get it. And I have my own special regimen that I do on every different flight, and it seems to work for me. I would never suggest that it would work for you. But the research tends to indicate I'm wrong, that it is a condition, and a valid one. And joining me now one of the researchers here at Sydney University, who has been specializing in this, uh, on a joint project with Qantas, because when you think about it, every international flight on in Qantas, more or less, is a long-haul flight. Svetlana Pusnova, welcome.
6: Thank you. Well, All right, I, so
0: is it a condition?
6: It is definitely a condition, and I suspect what happens to you is that you're in a state of perpetual jet lag because you travel so much.
0: <laughs> or a state of perpetual denial, which most of my friends would argue. Or well, denial, so. too. <laughs> exactly.
6: Um, so in terms of whether jet lag is a real condition, yes, definitely, it is a real condition, and It is composed of different symptoms. So one component is a traveler's fatigue which is due to flying itself. And obviously, the longer is the flight, the stronger is your traveler's fatigue. But
0: I know people who, who will claim they get jet lag on a one-hour flight, and that may just be traveler's fatigue.
6: That's that's probably traveler's fatigue, yeah. because usually with one-hour flight, you don't really cross many time But that's time where they, zones. They, they talk
0: themselves into thinking that they have jet lag.
6: Not really, because on the flight, well, first, you don't move as much. Right. Second, the lighting usually is pretty low, and this does affect your alertness. And second, humidity is low, too. So it's about 8%. in in the cabin, and this is the same humidity level as in the desert. So normally, we want to have about 40 to 60% humidity level. So this all will affect how you feel, and your fatigue will increase. So definitely, flying, I think, does have an effect.
9: And then
0: there are all the other elements that you need to be aware of, like you mentioned desert hydration, because if you're not drinking enough water, that desert effect gets compounded.
6: Yes, definitely. You, You do need to drink during your flight, both for fatigue, like to fight traveler's fatigue, and to maintain your health. Right, so because your body needs the water.
0: When you were researching your Perth to London flight, which is one of your longest flights, if not mm-hmm. your longest flight, I mean, you had to take all that into consideration in terms of how do you then choreograph the flight? How do you then schedule internally with your flight crews, and needless to say, your, your passengers as well, the lighting, the meals, the food, the drinking, uh, 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 or the hydration, I should say, the sleep, the movement, right? Some of which you can control, some of which you can't.
6: Yes, so. I think right now the Perth to London flight is the longest one from Australia. I may be wrong, but Qantas uh, people would know. Um, and yes, you do, optimally, you do want to align your lighting, your meal times, your exercise with your body clock. Because that's the second component of jet lag, is actual misalignment between our body clocks and environmental time cues.
0: Right, but most people don't know how to do that.
6: Don't have to...
0: Most people don't know how to do that.
6: Oh, yes, they don't know how to do it. Most people adjust naturally. When they arrive to the destination time zone, they are exposed to this new time cues, right? To the lighting. They are trying to eat during daylight time at the destination. And slowly they adjust. But the thing is, if they optimize... The timing of all those time cues. If they optimize timing of light exposure and meals and exercise and maybe some other things which we don't yet know about, then they can minimize jet lag and adjust much much faster.
0: Exactly. So you have to educate them, but you also have to educate your own team,
6: the the crew
0: on the plane, as to how to reorient their
6: schedule. Yes, definitely. And that's what we have done for the. Uh, Perth-London flight. So when we started working with Qantas, we already knew the departure and arrival times for the flights and duration of the flight. So um, I, by education, am a physicist, which means I do mathematical models of biology to understand biology and to make predictions. So I use mathematical modeling to calculate those optimal light schedules, which would allow us to facilitate adaptation to the destination time zone.
0: So really what you're trying to do is to align the light with or without meals, to align the light with or without hydration, with or without movement, to make sure that you get as close as you can to someone's actual biological clock.
6: Yes, yeah, so that was the first step. Because light, it helps us to change the uh, body time. right? If we are, for example, if you are exposed to light in the evening, at your normal like, evening time, this will delay your body clock. But if you're exposed to light early in the morning, it will advance your body clock. And by putting the light exposure at appropriate times, you can start realigning your body clock to the destination time zone.
0: All right, so let me ask you a a little silly question. For example, if I'm flying out of the Gulf states or in the Middle East, so many of the departing flights leave at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and you get on the plane, all you want to do is sleep, and they immediately want to feed you.
6: Mm. Yeah, that's definitely not a good time for a meal because your body clock is at its low state, and it means it's not ready to take in food. So the uh, timing of meals is really important, and how your body reacts to these meals depends on this time. For example, if you have meal early in the morning, then um, you have good glucose response, and glucose tolerance um, is as it's sort of expected in healthy conditions.
4: The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. <laughs> The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4.
0: always like to find American expats wherever I go, see what they're doing, not to mention why they're doing it, and whether they're ever going to come home. Uh, and I found one. She uh, she blogs something called The Accidental Australian, which should tell you everything you need to know. Her name is Katie Dundas. How are you, Katie?
4: Uh, very well. How are you?
0: From Poolsville, Maryland? That's
4: correct, yes.
0: And you've been here how long?
4: Uh, I've been in Sydney, Australia, about seven years.
0: And what brought you over here?
4: So I first moved to Sydney on a working holiday visa, which is a great way for Americans um, under the age of 31 to, to come spend some time in Australia. Um, and then I was luckily able to stay in this beautiful country thanks to um my partner, who's also Australian.
0: So basically, mm-hmm. love help you.
4: Uh, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you're here.
4: That's correct. Yeah. And you've
0: been writing this for how long?
4: So I started my travel blog probably about five years ago now. Um, really is just a fun way to keep my friends and family in touch um, with what life is like um, down under in Sydney and some of the funny things that have happened to me. And yeah, it's grown from well, there. Well, before
0: we get to the funny things, let's find <laughs> out why you came here in the first place.
4: Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I moved to, to Sydney um, with my partner who was who grew up in Sydney. So we yeah, moved back here together. Um, I was living in the UK at the time and then... Um, um, had done went to graduate school there and then uh, moved over to, to Sydney after that. With but them. it wasn't
0: that you had a dying you had a dying need to come to Australia. You were just moving with your partner.
4: I was, but um, I have to say I had always wanted to come to to Australia and experience it. So that worked out quite well. Hmm. Now
0: you're here. Yes, seven years. Yes, not going home.
4: Uh, well, My parents w- hope that I will one day, well, but I, we, I think oh, I'll here. Every parent hopes that. <laughs> yeah. But let's
0: talk about Katie. Is Katie going home?
4: I think I'll be pretty settled here in, in Sydney for the time being and in, in the near future, yes.
0: When you first got here, what was the biggest surprise to you? I um, mean, look, the good mm, news is they speak English. They
4: do. That helps, yep.
0: Okay, but?
4: Hmm. Uh, I think, gosh, Sydney is just so spectacularly beautiful, um, and the sunshine here, as we heard from the Bondi Lifeguard, it's so <laughs> extreme and bright, and um, it's just absolutely beautiful, the outdoors, and it's, it's unlike anywhere I've ever been, and it really takes your breath away, you know, seven years on I still you know get blown away by the opera house and the bridge and circular Quay and the beaches so but what was
0: it. the adjustment like for you
4: um yeah it was a bit tough at first um, you know I didn't really know anyone here other than my partner and his family so just the act of you know finding a job meeting new people making friends um yeah it can be a bit isolating I think when you first move overseas as an, as an expat so you really have to I think put yourself out there to, to find your niche make friends find well had, having lived in the UK mm.
0: before then you were used to driving on the wrong side of the road
4: <laughs> yes <laughs> that didn't
0: that didn't you know hurt you figured that one out mm, yep but what about you know lifestyle itself Uh, What about food? What about culture? What about basically timing? I mean, when I first came over Mm -hmm. here, Sydney closed at 5 o'clock in the afternoon.
4: Yeah, yeah. So Sydney, it, it is a very, very expensive place, I find, to live. Australia is generally, but especially Sydney. Um, just little things like, yeah, if you want, do you want to go shopping in America, you know, everything's open until 9 p.m. Um, here, everything does still close in terms of shopping at about 5 p.m., except for Thursday nights. That's the only night you can go shopping. Hoping um, for Thursdays. So, Waiting for Thursdays. So you've got till about 8 p.m. on Thursdays, and then, of course, everybody goes Ooh, that's pushing then. it, boy. So, uh, no. <laughs> so you've got to fight the crowds if you want to do anything after work hours to, to buy anything. Um, so that's a bit, a bit funny. Um, you know, I find Australia. It's a lot of a, it's. It's a big mix, I think, between American and British culture. So you can find a lot of things from back home. Um, but then, yeah, there are a lot of differences as well with with the lifestyle here. So it takes some getting used to.
0: And when your friends visit you, because you know, once you're here, then everybody from Maryland decides they want to come over and visit Katie. <laughs> right? What's the biggest surprise to them?
4: Um, that's a good question. I think just, you know, Maryland is a beautiful place, but you know, the the beaches and and the swimming here and and the, the bushwalking, the coastal, the coastal walkways, they're just, they just blow people away. I think they're just so spectacularly beautiful. And of course the wildlife. Well, let's, let's talk about that because
0: I'm going to guess that when you were growing up in Maryland, you weren't going on long hikes.
4: No, not really. (laughs) But But I do try to do a lot of that now. Yeah.
0: Because that's part of the culture here. It is.
4: Yes. Yeah. Right. So Mm
0: -hmm. you, so you do a little walkabout, do you?
4: (laughs) I do. (laughs)
0: And do you take hmm. your friends?
4: Yeah, no, I have some close girlfriends. We love to go bushwalking on the weekends and, and explore the. Explain how that works. So, um, you know, Sydney. It's just there's so many national parks. Um, you know, to the west, to the north, to the south, we're really lucky, and even just within Sydney itself. Um, and the the government and the councils have done a great job of just putting trails in place. Um, everything's marked really well. So if you want to do just a short walk for a kilometer or two, if you want to do a really long walk, you know, the Manly to Spit Bridge is quite a popular one. Um, to just you can get out there as long as you want, really. Um, multi-day overnight walks. So whatever suits you. No. Some of the mm.
0: touristy things, like have you climbed the bridge?
4: I have, yes. Yeah. I I've did too. I climb. loved it. I did too. It's one of the best things to do here, I think. And when Definitely. you got to the
0: top, did you do the selfie?
4: Um, they did take a few photos. I think we made a little video, and um, <laughs> it was quite fun. <laughs> it's something You can't do it anywhere else in the world, really, climb a bridge. So I think it's a spectacular thing. To do I met
0: the man who was around with his dad when they first opened, when they first built the bridge. Oh wow, okay. And he was mm. the one who came up with the idea of doing the bridge climb. Yeah, and It, was it a took great him a long driving to get the authorities to say, it did. Yeah. okay. Mm. But then it's like through the roof.
4: It has taken off, definitely.
0: It's a lot of fun. It is, yeah. It has the other thing about Sydney, which is great, is you're on the water. Mm. There are so many different ways. Look, just get out there and take a ferry, even if you don't know where it's going.
4: That's true. Just <laughs> get on a
0: ferry and go. And yep. then right. Mm. But my favorite thing to do mm. is I go down to Rose Bay. Mm. I get on to Catalina. Oh, yes. I get on the yeah. seaplane. Yep. I take it around Palm Beach mm. and up the Hawkesbury River okay. to Pete's Bite,
4: okay. this mm. great little
0: restaurant. And you can only get there by seaplane. Mm. And then on the way back, you stop for drinks at the Cottage Point Inn. Mm. And then what you do, which is the coolest thing, is as the sun is going down you come back in over Sydney and you, and you do a little trip around the opera house and around the bridge. Oh, that'd be spectacular. And back in. I mean, mm. it's a photo-op day.
4: Definitely. That'd be a great thing to do. I yeah. know.
0: See, while you're hiking, you can look up and see me. <laughs> yeah,
4: I'll live. <laughs> I'll live. Minnesota,
5: <laughs> Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, <laughs> Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa,
10: Ottawa,
4: Oklahoma,
5: Tampa, Panama, Maddowalala, Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo,
10: Tokyo. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place.
5: All right. I've been everywhere, man. The deserts bare, man. I breathe the mountain air, man. The travel I've my share, man. I've been everywhere
0: For those people who think that Australia being a relatively new continent Boston, um, in terms of maybe on your radar it does have an amazing history. It's a young colony in terms of Sydney, doesn't go back that long, started not too far after we did in the United States in the late 1700s, and yet they have an amazing museum here. And joining me now, the Chief Executive Officer and the Director of that museum of the Australian Museum, Kim McKay. How are you?
8: I'm really good, Peter. Thank you for coming to our beautiful city.
0: Well, you know, I've been coming here for, God, 45 years, so I, I, you don't need an industrial strength spatula to get me to come back.
8: No, you don't. I mean, it's, it's the sort of city that does intrigue. You, doesn't it? And a lot of people think it's a long way away from the States, but I call it dinner and a movie on a plane.
0: No, no, it's dinner and three movies, Kim. Come on. You know better than that.
8: <laughs> I sleep well on planes. Okay, good.
0: So sleep and one movie. Okay, I got it. But I have a rule, and I'm going to tell you my rule. Whenever I go to a city, new or old, right, whether I've gone once or I've gone ten times, I will go to one museum, not three. I'll just go to one because I don't want to lose perspective. I don't want to lose focus. I want to have enough time to really take it in. Otherwise, my eyes glaze over, right? And then I can have that experience. You have a very interesting museum here because even though Australia is still so young, you've got so much great stuff there.
8: Well, that that's, I think, the interesting thing about Australia. We are, in fact, a very old continent historically, and we have the longest um, continuous indigenous culture in the world. The Australian Aboriginal culture is traced back over sixty thousand years now and then of course since white settlement in 1788 uh, which is
0: really uh, the first colony
8: the first colony here in sydney and this thriving uh, modern metropolis has grown up in sydney but really all over right around the coast of australia you know most of the population here lives in the coastal fringes and it is a very contemporary thriving uh, country and a great country to live in but the museum itself has something else it sure does. You know, it was founded in 1827, which was not long after the colony started.
0: So you already have a sense of history.
8: We do. And in fact, we're the fifth oldest natural history and culture museum in the world, which is extraordinary. So what happened? The British came here, of course. uh, As they do. The the first fleet, uh, convicts were settled here. We have a convict history. And in fact, my great-great-grandfather was a convict as well. So just watch your possessions while I'm around. (laughs) But they really wanted to reflect what was happening in the UK and Europe at the time and start to treasure some of the natural resources of the country. And so the colonial secretary in England granted some money to build the first museum here. And that is the basis of the Australian Museum as it is today. And we have the largest collection in the Southern Hemisphere of natural science and cultural material, over 21.9 million objects and specimens. Say that again? 21.9. I haven't counted them personally, I've got to tell you.
0: (laughs) Which means you're rotating.
8: Uh, We do. Like all museums, we're basically established to be the storehouse of a nation's history and, and culture. You can imagine Australia at this time, there was this incredible fascination for our wildlife. People had never seen a platypus before. Uh, you know, they didn't believe it was real, in fact, when one of them was sent back to England for study. You know, it, it had a duck's bill, it had uh, webbed feet, it had a tail like a beaver, it just didn't make sense. They thought it had been, it was a, it was a stunt that we'd created here. Uh, of course, koalas and kangaroos and uh, echidnas, all of these incredible, extraordinary animals that had only ever been seen in Australia that are endemic to our culture. And so, because of this fascination, there was an eagerness to collect birds and animals and to study them. And of course, museums were the first place of scientific study. And so over the years, that collection represents, I think, a little bit of a sense of who we are. You know, Australians identify with the landscape and with the wildlife very closely. You would have noticed that, that we like living outdoors a lot. We go to the beach a lot. We like bushwalking. So we have this close personal identity with the natural environment. And I think that's why the museum thrived in the early days as well because this was a new continent being explored for the very first time and every time you turned around out in the bush, you discovered a new species. It was quite extraordinary. I mean, think about a voyage of discovery that just never ended. It really hasn't ended to this day. In fact, the discoveries we make... In our collections to this day, the museum usually, on average, discovers about 120 to 130 new species each year.
0: Now, Think about what she just said, because I'm always confronted with another figure about how many species are going extinct every year. You're discovering how many?
8: Uh, Between about 120 and 130 new species each year in the collection. That
0: is remarkable. So,
8: yes, species are going extinct at the fastest rate in in our history since humans have been on this planet. But what we find through the use of DNA technology is we're able to start to identify that even though two animals might sort of look similar in the past were identified as being the same thing, the DNA shows us that, in fact, they're very different.
0: It's really amazing.
8: And that is really what museums do. So they do a different type of science than a standard university might do, for example. And of course, as part of that, we also then put these beautiful discoveries on display and try and explain to the public what is happening in our country and in our culture as well.
0: What really impresses me is the Australians' almost obsessive need to preserve the culture.
8: I think it's becoming much more important. You know, as I mentioned our First Nations people have been here for sixty thousand years. They were incredible land managers. We we're always taught, at, when I was at school that they had no technology, that they were hunter gatherers. That was it.
0: Oh no, that's not. That is definitely not true. Because it is not true. I spent time in the outback, yeah. and I spent time with them just to talk about their dreams, just to talk about how they how they recorded their dreams, which were leaps and bounds ahead of us.
8: That's right. The dreaming and their understanding of the stars. I mean, so many things. I'm very fortunate that at the museum we have a whole team of young First Nations people who work there and work on our collection and our interpretation of that. So we have one of the largest Aboriginal collections in the nation and, in fact, all of the visitors to the museum are most intrigued by that. We've got two beautiful big Aboriginal galleries and we do lots of tours with our young First Nations people taking tourists on... On these tours and behind the scenes to experience their culture.
4: Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63.
1: My
0: next guest is somebody I have actually can admit to know, have, knowing, have known for uh, over 22 years. Uh, when I first knew him, he had one restaurant in Sydney. And how many do you have now?
10: About 68. <laughs> yeah, but who's counting? I've been
0: busy. <laughs> Neil Perry from the original Rock Pool, I should yes. say. But you have another title as well. You are the food and beverage director of
10: all things Qantas. Yes, absolutely. And uh, service as well. So, busy beaver.
0: Most people... And and you've heard this from me before. You know, they, they define the words airline food as an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. um, I know you would take that as an insult these days, but <laughs> you and I go back to the days when exactly that's what it was. Absolutely. What's changed?
10: Oh, look, a lot's changed. I mean, airlines have recognised that uh, they've they've got to make food and service and beverage a really important part of the travel experience. It's not just about comfort. Uh, it's obviously the main the main thing is to get from point A to point B, but it's how you take your premium customers there that are really important. So, yeah, the quality of the ingredients that we put in, the quality of the experience we want to deliver, and I think most importantly, the learnings um, that we've had and, and the, you know, the crew training we've been able to give over those 22 years.
0: You've also had the ability ever- of different kinds of aircraft that give you different technology that allows you to do a better job, simply because of either refrigeration systems, freezers, different kinds of ovens.
10: Yeah, all that sort of thing, and and importantly with the more modern aircraft, you know, more intake of fresh air, pressure, all the sorts of things that affect taste uh, in the air are, are lessening these days, so I think it's it's been a great journey, and certainly I would say that nearly every airline in the world these days is recognised, particularly in premium, that, uh, you know, there's some very stiff competition, and people are obviously, you know, schedule's important, comfort's important, but people take food and beverage and the, and the, and that ex- part of the experience as a very important driver to the airlines that they choose to fly on.
0: When Qantas first came to you, how many years ago?
10: Uh, Twenty-two years. This month, actually, <laughs> since when I met. Yeah, yeah. I
0: have, I, no coincidence there. But <clears throat> since they first came to you, I mean, when they, you have to say, wait a minute, I've flown. You want me to do what?
10: Yeah, I did say something be, like that. Because, <laughs> I mean, you, you pride
0: yourself. I yeah. know I've been to many of your restaurants. I mean, it's not just the preparation. It's, yeah. the, it's the philosophy of it.
10: Well, well, I think really importantly, Peter, what I did say to Jeff back in those days. What, about Jeff Dixon. Yes, Jeff Dixon. I said yeah. to him, um, look, no use me just writing one thing on the menu, which is currently the, the way chef panels get put together, and then the rest of it's done by the traditional in-flight services. I said to him, um, I really felt I had to write the whole menu uh, and had to be in control of it for me to make a difference. Well, let's talk about
0: that because... I've seen other "quote unquote" celebrity chefs. And yeah, by the yeah. way, we live in the world now where everybody's a celebrity chef, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I got a job, so <laughs> I mean, well, we know that. But you know, they'll put their picture on the menu. They'll put their name on the menu, yeah. and then you don't see them. I mean, yeah. they're they're not really actively in the kitchen supervising. I mean, obviously, you can't be in all 68 restaurants yeah, at course. the same time either. But what happens is you've got other people making your dishes, right? Yep. But then there's the, the issue of quality control. Different catering operations in different markets. Yes, because you know you're flying to so many different cities around the world. How do you do that?
10: I I suppose it's easy for you to manage that on a restaurant level. How do you manage that on an airline level? Well, well quite, quite similarly, actually. So on the on the project now that we have, what we call the Qantas Project, I mean, we're totally integrated into the in-flight services department. And so I've got 12 full-time staff that belong to me that work on that program. So just like I would put responsibility for my restaurants on my executive chef and general manager to carry out the philosophy that I put in place and that I continue to upkeep with them, the same thing happens here. I've got a brilliant team of people whose job is to design to train, to communicate, and very importantly, to make sure that standards are met. So they're continually on the road working with the catering centres, they're continually training with crew, and they're continually making sure that that philosophy that we put in place is continually adhered to. So in, in essence, it's no different to what I, how I would approach it with the restaurants. And so that goes back to that discussion I had with Jeff 22 years ago of no use me putting my name on it unless I can actually do it. And right. he said, well, what will that take? And I said, staff. And he said, well, let's do it. And and that's a great story that's been uh, evolving over 22 years. And I still can't believe other airlines have not modeled um, that that particular uh, way of doing it.
0: Because you also had to get re-educated. I mean, you had to re-educate the airline. They had to re-educate you. Yeah, they had, absolutely. they had to say, hey, Neil, no, you can't do that because we don't have the physical space for it. Absolutely. Or you can't do that because it weighs too much. Or you can't do that because it costs too much yeah yeah there's right? a whole
10: lot of there's a whole lot of reasons I mean right. but, there's then a whole had,
0: but then you also had to say to them you know but we have to do this otherwise yeah. you'll never get to that
10: yeah, exactly and one of the things was the quality of the produce I mean when I came on board there were sort of four, four main philosophies let's fly great salad because I'm not seeing any great salad in, on an airline let's fly great bread because I'm not seeing any good bread on an airline um, let's make sure the cheeses are ripe and ready to go why aren't we flying really high quality cheeses on an airline and why and what was, and what was the answer and the answer was let's do it so we did so the answer was getting calendar cheese, one of our best cheese suppliers in the country, to pick cheeses that we should, you know, the great thing is you fly it in the air today and, 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 and it goes to waste if it's not eaten. And, and so, you know, unlike a restaurant where you're juggling like, oh, I didn't eat all the brie or they didn't eat all this. You don't have to worry about that. So we were flying cheeses that were ready to, to go and fantastic cheeses from Australia and around the world. So that was really an exciting thing. And the other thing that I really focused on was ripe fruit. Let's make sure we've got some decent fruit for people to eat for breakfast or for snacks. Really simple things, but they were the cornerstones that we then put the main courses and starters around that really made the difference for, for what we do. Airlines are putting and still do, you know, eight different types of bread rolls in first or business class. I mean, if they're not good, why put eight on? Why not put two really good ones? You know, so that was our philosophy, and, and I'm a very pragmatic person, so I think it worked really okay, well. Okay,
0: you gave me two words that I just uh, kind of hung on ripe fruit. Yes. I mean, who's actually inspecting the fruit to make sure it's actually ripe? Because you're buying it in bulk.
10: Yeah, yeah, we're buying it, but our guys are checking catering centers and we're making sure that if we're flying pineapple or papaya or whatever it might be, or if we're in Thailand and it's beautiful, exotic, tropical fruit, or if it's an apple, it's we're, we're going to our suppliers and saying, at the moment in Australia, there are some amazing fresh apples around. There's also some apples that have been in a coal store for 12 months. So it's making sure through our suppliers that we're getting those fruits, uh, vegetables, you know, meats, whatever it might be of the highest quality so that we can make sure that we're giving the best quality product to our customers.
0: Now, of course, there's a bad four-letter word called cost, right? Always one Always. eye on that one. Exactly. Um, and if you take a look at the numbers that I see about what does an airline, not your airline, yeah, but yeah. what does any airline spend on a coach meal, a yeah. business class meal, or on a first class meal, most people, if you look at, at U.S. airlines, yes. and you look at what they spend on a coach meal, you're better off at McDonald's. I mean, they're they're spending it about what three dollars, maybe yeah, maybe yeah, three dollars. Yeah,
10: yeah, well, some American and the airlines
0: don't fly food at all, do they? Or... Well, we're talking about Southwest, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. yeah, but at least they're spending money on at least to spend money on peanuts. But, yeah, right. But what I'm saying is, you had those numbers to work with, but those are the numbers that were already in place before you got here. Yeah. So you had to then say to them, "Excuse me, guys, we need more money."
10: Yeah, absolutely. And and look, you know, when you talk about costs, of course, in the modern world, we're always under pressure. Uh, pressures of cost but but the reality is also we have to figure out a smarter way of doing things which is what we're continually doing and the longer we stay in the airline, the more efficient we are and the better we are at doing it. So there's always cross-push uh, throughout every airline in the world because it's the most incredible business. You, Peter, you've been reporting on it for many years. You know whether it's, uh, you know, a, a war breaks out or a SARS disease or an economy crashes or, in, f- in fact, fuel price go, goes up. The pressures on airlines are, are, are continual on saving money and, 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 and staying viable. So we really, you know, we really keep uh, on top of that one by being more and more clever about what we do. We never want to undermine the quality of what we're putting on the plate, the great flavor of it, the taste, the texture, the experience from the customer's point of view. But in the modern world, we've got to get smarter and smarter all the time at delivering that.
0: And, you know, so, so basically, uh, let me let me take a wild guess. You're not serving a lot of Wagyu.
10: Uh, we're not serving a lot of Wagyu, but then, you know, I'm a grass-fed guy, so, so <laughs> you, you, you said I was just in the produce awards the last two days doing tastings, and I was trying to educate my fellow chefs about the difference between, you know, Wagyu grass-fed and grain-fed beef and, and the difference in flavor profiles, so yeah, I'm definitely a, gra- a grass-fed guy. But you
0: also had to educate the accountants as to what you really could afford.
10: Yeah, absolutely. And we had to also say uh, w- what's really important is where the value is. So you have to look at a product and say, is is that worth that bit more? And it might be a little bit more or it might be a lot more, but is it worth it? And menu design, we have to say customer wow factor and the experience, the eatability of it, absolutely worth it and we're getting great value out of that. Or we have to say, do you know what? For, for one extra dollar, um, we, we can have that. And that's really so close to that extra one for $50. Why would we even look at it? So every single thing that we do is, ev- is evaluated, on, or evaluated on, on the value that it gives to the customer uh, as well as, obviously, the value it delivers for their airline. But
0: initially, you had to perform some triage there. You had to say, you know what? We're not doing the eight rolls. We're doing two. But in replacing yeah, yeah. that,
10: we're going to do a different kind of butter. Yeah, absolutely, and and, and and massaging the budget. We still do that today. We don't have a, a, a budget that relates to each individual dish. That's what you can spend. It's what that particular um, class is and how much we're spending per passenger flying out of that for however many meal types we might have, depending on length. And so it allows us to spend money wherever we might want to spend it and save it wherever we might need to spend it.
5: Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly with me. Let's fly. Let's, let's get fly by away. the
0: stereotypes. All right. I know you want to come to Australia come to see koalas, which, by the way, and I, I know, and I know you want to hold one. They're going to scratch the hell out of you, and they're even going to urinate on you. Trust me, I've had it happen. All right, then you want to go see a kangaroo? Okay, they're cute, they hop, I get it. But if you really want to see everything about Australia, you got to go to this place, the Featherdale Wildlife Park, right here in Sydney. And joining me now, the director of life sciences there, Chad Staples. Are you with me on this? It's okay for the koala, it's okay for the for the kangaroo, but there's other stuff
5: that you'll never see anywhere else. Exactly. Look, come for the koala, but stay for the bird life is a is a big one. Okay, tell me more. Oh, look, Australia is known as the land of parrots, and I mean, even that's just where you scratch the surface. Now
0: you see, now you've just surprised half my audience. <laughs> <laughs> they don't
5: know about parrots. They know about koala and kangaroo. Sure. Just that color, the noise, the movement, just the amazing variety in Australia. It's just spectacular. I mean, we've, we've developed as an island nation, so there's so many things that you just do not see anywhere else. I mean, marsupials, just as a, as a big group, we, we basically hold about 99% of the world's population of marsupials. just this different way of mammals giving birth. Platypus? Well, platypus, uh, almost like an invention. You almost can't <laughs> believe that that's a real thing until you see one. I want to see where the batteries are. You <laughs> that's <know>? right. <laughs> They're there somewhere. Now, you've been there 22 years. I have. So I've seen a lot change, a lot. You know, come and go and expand, but, yeah, it's just a, a huge family. All right, so let's dispel some myths here, okay? Sure. I
0: can come to the wildlife park and see a koala. Absolutely, and you should do. And, yeah. I, and I've done it, okay? Yep. And keep in mind, guys, they eat eucalyptus, mm-hmm. they sleep a lot. A lot. A lot. <laughs> yeah. So don't think they're going to, like, wave back at you. No. They're not going to do that. No, they are not. Right.
5: And do people come and want to hold them? They do. Absolutely, and I do understand because before you meet one, they look like a teddy bear. Right. But they're really not. You know, they are designed to live up in trees, so they have gigantic claws. I mean, we're
0: talking gigantic claws.
5: I I, I get shredded all the time, and that's just from moving them around. And it's no malice to them, but they are just designed to hold on to tree trunks. Right, and you become the trunk. And you are the trunk. They figure we're made of wood, just like everything else they sit in.
0: Okay, see, and you have the scars to prove it. Absolutely.
5: (laughs) I go through many, many shirts. All right, so that's the koala experience, told you. That's right. Staples. <laughs> what about kangaroo? Look, they're, they're fascinating. And I guess what a lot of people who come to visit the country don't really notice well don't know how many different varieties there are there aren't just kangaroos there's not just wallabies we we now have quokkas which are a lot more people say that again quokkas what's a so quokka so a very small they're in the same family so the same mode of locomotion so they still hop but they're very very small we have paddy melons we have you have what paddy melons so <laughs> another beautiful group of smaller so they're all macropods which means big foot so anything that hops around is part of this big family and we have so many we have rock wallabies we have so many that fit into that same you know quote unquote kangaroo family that people are just amazed by and of course they want to play with the kangaroos too when they visit and you should it's wonderful to sort of they are so different than anything else in the world i totally get the fascination i'm still fascinated by them and you still play with them (laughs) every morning And do they respond to you? In different ways. So I'm very lucky. So if we sort of talk about the koala again, how, you know, they do sleep a lot. They do not really interact as much as what people would hope. But I am very lucky that I've hand-raised koalas and I do have... So they know you. One does in particular. One. After all these years, you got one. Well, my little man at the moment is Archer. He's five years old and I hand-raised him since he was about six months old. So I was his mum. So the fact that, you know, we we did the bottle feeding, we did that very close... close raising, I am very lucky that I have one (laughs) that does really seem to seek me out. So he's happy to see you? Uh happy might be a stretch, but he does like me <laughs> holding him rather than him having to do all the effort in the tree. You know? Okay, so he's... Mum's here, he'll hold me. He, okay, he's more comfortable <laughs> with you. Absolutely.
0: Okay. Absolutely.
5: And then there's the owl. Owls are amazing. And so... Once again,
0: people don't, n- don't associate Australia with owls.
5: No, and I understand that because our owls do look a little bit different. So we do have some of those almost quintessential owls with the beautiful round disc face and those wise eyes, but we do have some very different ones. I mean, we have an owl called a barking owl that actually makes a woof-woof noise Not a like a dog. Not, Not a hoot-hoot. They don't hoot. A woof-woof. A they barking just amazing. owl. Yep. Wow. That's a little bit different. Well, and it's spectacular, and that is Nocturnal as well? Absolutely, yeah. They will be a little more diurnal depending on the time of year and the food they're going after. So being nocturnal is all around exploiting a food more than anything. They've learned to hunt at night, so therefore they're not in the same competition if they're awake during the day.
0: So basically when they bark, people think dogs are chasing them, and then they swoop down (laughs) and get them. Grab them, fly (laughs) off. That's right. (laughs) Lifting little small children into the air. (laughs) Exactly. Another myth disputed. Okay. But all of this is available at the wildlife park.
5: And I guess that's something that Featherdale's always tried to do is – you know, we, we want people to fall in love with Australian animals and the easiest way and best way to do that is to be up close, personal, interact where possible. You know, just the closeness, just you appreciate so much more. And you are open how many days? Every single day. I mean, we've got to feed our babies on Christmas Day, so we're even open for a short time on Christmas Day because we're there anyway. Unbelievable. <laughs> You've been
2: listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail.